We are in a series currently, uh, actually a very long series that we um, have been calling the books, because remember that what we call the Bible, the word Bible means what? The, Bible, the word Bible means, I've been saying this for weeks now, so someone help me here. The word Bible means the books, right? It means books, because the Bible is not a book, it's, it's two collections of books. It's one collection is the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, the story of ancient Israel, their laws, their kings, their founders, all that happened to get them where they were, is the story of a nation. It's called the Hebrew Scriptures. And the other collection of books is called the Christian Scriptures, right? Story of, uh, yeah, story of, of Jesus and the early church and where we are today. So these two collections of books bound together make up what we call the Bible. We've been working our way through the Hebrew Scriptures this year. And we're taking longer than I thought because that's how I do things. So we have, we have, um, we've, we've paused along the way. And um, we are um, going to be um, continuing our, our, well, on the screen here you see we are in our next mini-series, our limited series within the uh, bigger series. Uh, we're calling this one The Rescuers because we are now in the book of Judges. And I'm just a little review to help you catch up to where we've made it so far in our journey. We saw Israel come out of slavery they made it into the, the wilderness, Moses' leadership. In that 40 years, the parents got old and died off of their lack of faith to trust God to go to the next level. And the kids grew up, and they were ready to enter into the land of Canaan where their ancestors hundreds of years earlier once lived. And um, God promised to bring them back to this promised land. And the children grew up, and they moved into the promised land after Moses died under Joshua's leadership. And then in, in, the, in the land of Canaan, they settled down. They had wars. They had battles. They carved out their niche. They divided the land into 12 tribes. They still had enemies around them. They didn't fully uh, put down, but they, were, but they were settled and able to, to occupy part of that land again and, and, and find their boundaries again and establish their nation once more. So then Joshua hung up, the, hung up his cleats and said, I'm going to go home and you decide if you're going to serve the Lord or not, but I'm going to serve the Lord. Joshua did that and everyone in Israel kind of followed the Lord as long as Joshua was alive, as long as the leaders that outlived Joshua were alive. But then as they died off, another generation rose up. And the next generation who came up thought, you know, you know we have better ideas. And it, which, is, which is normal for all of us, right? For me and for all of us. So they, they came to a spot where they said, you know, you know, I know what we were taught. I know what, you know, our grandparents and our parents had in our, you know, and with the laws that God, were, God gave us through them. But, but you know what? There's just so much more to spirituality than just this. So they turned and began to embrace the idolatry that was in the land before they got there. And they began to embrace Baal worship. They began to embrace Ashtoreth worship. Baal was a, a, um, a sun god, a god of fertility and, and, and different things. Uh, uh, Ashtoreth was a goddess, a queen of heaven, they called her, uh, the moon god, and also a goddess of fertility. And they, and they worshiped these things in the, in the land before Israel got there. And then with that was so many good, uh, you know, weird things, but also a lot of very evil practices, such as child sacrifice and uh, very perverted things like bestiality. And, and the land had become so weakened before everyone arrived into the country that God basically said, Israel, you're strong. You've got some laws. You've trusted in me. You're going to occupy this place, and we're going to expel them out. But as, as they settled into the land, and Joshua died off, and the leaders died off, and another generation rose up, the next generation said, you know what? I think that that's just not the whole picture. There's more to this whole thing what we were, than what we were given. And they grabbed a hold of the idolatry of the land. And they walked away from God and his covenant. 
And God had made a covenant with them. He said, look, I'll bring you out of slavery without you, even, without you signing the dotted line. I'll just do it because you need it. But in the wilderness, we'll make a covenant. And if you want to trust me and follow me, I will bless you. And I will be with you supernaturally. But when they walked away from God, he let them. And I told you last week, as I finished this review, I told you last week that it was a crazy cycle. Picture a cycle. And at first they're blessed by God. Things are great. Then they wander away from God because, you know, they have better ideas, usually a generation or two later. And then at that point, they would end up in trouble. Eventually, walking away from God's ways, walking away from wise living, led them into trouble. But remember, there's always a lagging effect. Most good decisions we make don't pay off right away. Most bad decisions we make don't, don't burn us right away. That's why we, we get discouraged doing the good things or we feel emboldened to keep doing the bad things because it catches up to us later. So they'd walk away from God and in time they'd end up in trouble. And then they'd cry out to God and say, God, send us somebody. And God would raise up a rescuer or a judge or a deliverer, all three terms to describe the same person, a rescuer to, to free them from their troubles. And then they'd come back to God and they'd be on top again. But then another generation or so would pass and they'd wander away into other forms of idolatry and other things and they'd walk away from God's ways and they'd end up in trouble and they'd cry out to God and God raise up another rescuer. They'd be on topside again and the cycle would continue. And that's the story right there in the nutshell of the book of Judges. Now, what's interesting, and I don't think I pointed this out last week, is that when they cry out to God for help in the middle of that, God would send a prophet to them and the prophet would say, listen, I'm glad that you're crying out to God for help. But the prophet would say, God did not abandon you. Don't get this wrong. You chose to walk away and God loves you enough to let you. This is a big idea. You chose to walk away and God loved you enough to let you. And now you call out to him, he's here for you. But his love allowed you to try to figure it out on your own. And how's that working out? So the prophet would tell them that they were in the mess because of their choices and God's grace to let them do it, whatever they wanted. And then he'd bring a new rescuer in. So we saw that last week. We gave you the list of all the rescuers on the screen. We talked about Deborah last week and Ehud. Those are some pretty crazy stories. Today I want to tell you a story about another rescuer that came along. And to give you the background, what happens is that the, uh, the Midianites now are the enemy. The Midianites begin to attack Israel, but the way they do it is they get groups of armed men and they form raiding parties to go into Israel and they would take their cattle and steal them for themselves and, and what they couldn't steal, they'd kill and leave dead behind them. They would steal their crops. What they couldn't steal, they would destroy and leave behind them to where Israel was not only, they were getting wealthy, but Israel was getting towards starvation. And the, the people of Israel would hide in caves and dens and, and anywhere they could hide to, to stay safe from the plundering and the marauders. And then as they would come in, they would hide whatever wealth they had because they didn't want it stolen from them. They'd hide their crops, they'd hide their goods. But it was usually to little avail. And so we pick up the story in Judges 6, verse 5, says these enemy hordes coming with their livestock and tents were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. And then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. And this is the cycle. Now they're back to crying out, God, send us a rescuer. And God does. His name will be Gideon. And Gideon is our story today. 
It says in Judges 6, verse 11, that Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. So picture, picture, um, picture Gideon. He knows that if he, they find him threshing the wheat, they might take it from him. So he's doing what everyone else is. He's hiding. And he's in the bottom of a wine press. I want you to see this, this wine press here. Uh, this is a picture of, uh, of an ancient um, of an ancient wine press, they may look differently at different times, but the idea, maybe you've seen them before, or pictures or whatever, you trod down the, 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 the grapes and the, the, wine, the juice would run out and into the bottom, and that's where you'd get it from. So, so Gideon would hide in the wine press, and inside of there he could maybe cover it up part way, and he would thresh his wheat, and maybe no one would steal it from them. Maybe none of the enemy would take it from them. And while he's doing that, it says in verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Now this is interesting, right? Because if I'm Gideon, okay, so let's be honest. If you were walking around today and an angel of the Lord appears to you out of nowhere in the middle of some place where you're hiding anyhow, first thing you might need is a clean change of pants, I don't know. But anyhow, after that, if the angel said to you, mighty hero, the Lord is with you, some of us might be like, who else is here? I think you have the wrong zip code. Um, I want to believe the Lord is with me, but I think you missed the mark in the first part. I'm not a mighty hero. Gideon's out hiding, threshing the sweet, and this angel says, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. What is Gideon's response? Why, thank you. No, Gideon's response is going to be to throw out his distress, his complaint, to the Lord. Let's look at that verse. Judges 6.13 says, Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Interesting, isn't it? If the Lord's with us, then why all this? Have you ever been there in your life before where you come to a spot where you're like, if God is really with me, if I have chosen to trust and follow the Lord and he is with me, then why did I lose that? So why did I have that setback? Why did I lose my job? Why did I lose my, that relationship? Why did I lose, why did I have that hurt come my way? Why did that, that, that health crisis come my way? Why did this happen? If, if God is really with me, if I have chosen to trust and follow him and he's for me and he's with me, then why is all this stuff going on? And Gideon's like, look, I hear what you're saying, but I don't get it. He continues, he says, didn't the Lord, didn't, um, I'm sorry, where were all the, um, the miracles our ancestors told us about? We read about them. We, ha we have the stories they're in the book. We, we know people who tell once upon a time God did something pretty awesome. So I guess, yeah, but where's that for me today? Didn't our ancestors say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? That's a great story for them, but now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. And this is the part where God could have stepped in and said something like, well, as I've said before, every time that this happens, God didn't abandon you, you abandoned him. Because God often sent a prophet to, say, to answer that kind of a question. You walked away and God in love let you. He let you do what you were gonna do. But God doesn't do that here. Because here's the why. Gideon knows. It's like he didn't know why. He's not looking for a logical answer as to why they're in trouble. He's emotionally saying, why is it so bad? And so God doesn't do the old actually, to, to Gideon here, he just decides we're not going to look at the past, we're going to look at the future. We're not look, looking at back, we're looking forward. We're not going to answer why, we're going to answer how. 
So the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue the Israel, Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. <laughs> Gideon, you are the answer to your prayer. Be careful what you pray for, by the way. You're the answer to your prayer. God, you got to rescue us. I'm going to. You. Oh. You know, he says, he, he says, I've given you strength. You're going to go with the strength you have, and you're going to be the deliverer. You're going to be the judge, the rescuer of the people. And Gideon is now going to have another complaint, <laughs> verse 15. But Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my entire family. In other words, he's saying Manasseh is not exactly the, the go-to tribe of Israel. We're not Judah. We're not Levi, where Moses came from. Like, we're like a divided tribe with half of us on one side of the Jordan River, half on the other. And within Manasseh, I'm like a weak part of the tribe my clan is, and of my family, I'm, I'm the bottom of the barrel. So, like, literally, why are you picking me? Gideon's reaction here sounds so familiar if you've been tracking with us, doesn't it? Isn't that kind of what Moses said at the burning bush? God, I can't deliver Israel from Egypt. I mean, I, who am I? I can't speak well. It was what Joshua was going through when God said, Joshua, you be strong and have a good courage. You trust me. So, so what's happening in our story is that God keeps picking people who didn't think they were good enough to do the job who would say, God, I can't. And it's almost like that's who God wanted. Not people running around saying, oh no, I got this. Look at me, aren't I incredible? God didn't pick the arrogant one and the one who knew that they had it all figured out and they could do no wrong because someone like that will first of all take all the credit for it if they get the job done and second of all will probably mess up along the way in their arrogance. And so God was kind of finding the person all the time who would say, I can't. And God says, but because you believe that, because of your humility, I'm going to tell you you can. And together, you'll walk humbly, you'll walk wisely, and we're going to get the job done. So God says to him in verse 16, the Lord said, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if it was one man that you were fighting against. And I hope that today, somewhere in your life, if you're struggling, if you're struggling with the idea that you're, you're not enough, that you can't fulfill the calling God's put on your life, that you can't, you can't do the things, you can't, um, you, you can't um, fill, fulfill your purpose, you can't handle your responsibilities, or you can't do the right thing because perhaps your fear is that if you did the right thing, if you played ethically with your life, you have to be unethical to get ahead, and if you did it the right thing, it wouldn't work out because you're not enough. So you don't want to trust God. You don't want to follow him. You're afraid of your calling and you're afraid of his purposes for you. I want to say this. If that's your situation today, listen, Gideon was there too. But here's what I want to say to all of us. That God can do more through you than you can see in yourself. That God can do more through you than you can see in yourself. Never limit God. That God can come down and say, look, I know that you don't believe it's possible, but that's when it's most possible. That you don't think you can, but that's when you most can. Because I can do more through you than you can see in yourself. And all you need to do is trust me. And I hope that today we can trust him in what he calls us to do. Well, Gideon is still not sure, so he asks God to prove himself through a test. And this is kind of funny to me because, you know, he's like, well, an angel appearing to me in the middle of my wine press wasn't sign enough, so I want to ask you for another sign. So let me test you, God. I'm going to prepare a meal for you, bring it back to you, and I want you to eat it to the angel. 
And the angel's like, okay, whatever. So Gideon goes, makes this whole elaborate meal, brings it back, puts it, in, he's like, put it on the ground on this rock. Gideon does. He has fire consume it. And then he, the angel disappears. And Gideon's like, wow, that's cool. And then God's like, now Gideon, you tested me. My turn to test you since we're going to do this testing thing here, you know. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to your father's house where you live. And he has a grove in the back where they worship these idolatrous practices that you were told not to. He has an altar to Baal. He has a, a, an Asherah pole to Ashtoreth. Did you hear that? Gideon's father was doing the very, Gideon came from a family of people doing the very things that got him that, that that in trouble in the first place, that got them away from God. His dad wasn't just, he wasn't just a person in a, in a nation that had gone away. His dad had his own grove, those sacred space outside to go out and feel at one and, and, and have an altar to make sacrifices to Baal. And an Asherah pole cut down from a tree and carved into an image with a trunk to worship Ashtoreth. And God says, Gideon, go back to your dad's grove. Here's your test. And, and, and listen, I want to step out there and say, Gideon was no blue blood. Gideon was not a blue blood. He didn't like come from this line of spiritual giants. He was literally a guy who, whose family was part of the whole problem. But God said, Gideon, I'm speaking to you. Here's your test. Go back, get your dad's seven-year-old bull, put the, put the um, ropes around the altar to Baal and have the bull pull down the altar. I want you to cut down his Asherah pole. I want you to kill your dad's bull. No, no, first of all, build a new altar to me from the remnants. Sacrifice the bull on an altar as a burnt offering. Use the wood from the Asherah pole you cut down to make the fire. Any questions? And so Gideon does the only sensible thing. He decides to do it at night while everyone's asleep. So in the middle of the night, he gets out there, brings the bull, pulls the altar down, builds one to the Lord, cuts down the Asherah pole, puts the wood on there, offers dad's bull as a sacrifice on the altar, and then he goes back home. And you say, well, that didn't seem very brave, but it was probably smart. Here's why. For Judges 6.28, early the next morning, as the people of the town began to stir, someone discovered that the altar of Baal had been broken down, and that the Asherah pole beside it had been cut down. And in their place, a new altar had been built. And on it were the remains of the bull that had been sacrificed. The people said to each other, who did this? And after asking around and making a careful search, they learned that it was Gideon, son of Joash. Bring out your son, the people of the town. The men of the town demanded of Joash. He must die for destroying the altar of Baal and cutting down the Asherah pole. So here's what's happening. Here's what's happening. There's a mob with pitchforks and torches gathered at Joash's house. They're furious. They're like, your son must die today for what he did. You know the crazy part? Guess whose grove it was? Joash, Gideon's dad. If anyone should be very angry here is Joash, Gideon's dad. Because that was his grove his altar to Baal, his Asherah pole. I know everyone in the town used it and they thought it a sacred spot they all wanted to come to. It was his dad's bull. And so, I mean, they're all mad and ready to burn the place down and Joash is probably mad. What'd you do, kid? But Joash, in this moment, has a decision to make. What's he gonna do? Is he going to, you know, this, this religious tug of war that's going on, is he gonna sit there and say, my religious beliefs, my bull, my and son, you desecrated it, and therefore you get what you, you guess coming to you? Or am I going to 
to be a dad, even though I'm very upset. This is a powerful moment here. And I said this to my small group. We had a small group start this week, and we, we got off into the subject real bad our first week, which we thought we might. And we talked about hot-button issues. And I said, it's easy for a bunch of us to make a bunch of topics into hot-button issues in culture and have opinions about what's right and wrong about everything until the situation comes close to home, until it's in our family, until something's going on, and all of a sudden it's not just an issue that you're ranting about. It's, it's someone you care about. And Joash, he's like, I'm worshiping Baal. I have an Asherah pole, and, and everyone's ready, and everyone else is doing what they would do. We're going to fight, and we're going to kill the perpetrator. And Joash is like, that's my son. Now it's personal. What's he do? What does he do when he's disappointed? And he does the, the thing that you would hope a good dad would do in that situation. Though he did not agree, though he was upset, though it was personal, he said, he talks to the crowd down. Verse 31 Joash shouted to the mob that confronted him, Why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads Baal's case will be put to death by morning. If Baal truly is a god, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. In other words, what Joash is like saying is, he's, Look, really? You're saying that someone went into Baal's little sacred spot and tore his stuff down, but Baal's too weak to defend himself. That's what you're saying. You're saying that he needs you because he's too weak to defend himself. If they say that's created Baal's worship place, then let him fight for himself. If he's so powerful, if he's worthy of our worship, then let him defend himself. And if you think that he's such a weak God that we gotta step in and defend him, then you're the one who's wrong. You're the one who needs to be put to death. Isn't that interesting? In other words, before you decide to go kill somebody else in the name of your God, before you go decide, listen carefully, before you decide to go kill someone else in the name of your God or do something harmful in the name of your God because he can't stick up for himself because he's not big enough, ask yourself what your beliefs are. We could all do that, couldn't we? And so at that point, everyone backs down and leaves Joash alone and leaves Gideon alone. And in verse 37, then Gideon, uh, I'm sorry, verse 32, from then on, Gideon was called Jerubael, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down the altar of Baal. So that's just the background. Now, now we get to get to the adventure. Ready? Here goes. Soon afterwards, verse 33, the armies of Midian, Amalek, and all the people from the east formed an alliance against Israel, crossing the Jordan and camping in the valley of Jezreel. Here's the event. It's not just the Midianites anymore picking on Israel. They formed a military alliance with Amal, the Amalekites, and a bunch of other people that they didn't even name, other nations or groups of people, other cities of people. And all of these groups send their soldiers together to just kind of knock off Israel once and for all. And there's so many that they fill the whole valley of Jezreel. Now it's time to step up and handle it. Verse 34, the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power. He blew a ram's horn as a call to arms, and the men of the clan of Abiezer came to him. He also sent messengers through Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, summoning their warriors, and all of them responded. And by the way, the number here is 32,000. 32,000 men come ready to fight for Israel to join, to join Gideon. That's not as many people as are in the valley of Jezreel to fight against them. That number is not given, but it mentions later that it's an innumerable, it's just a huge number. 32,000 men join, from a few tribes join Gideon for the fight. And Gideon, it said a minute ago, God's spirit came upon him. He has God's spirit upon him, and he's gathering the forces together. But look at verse number 36. Then Gideon said to God, 
If you truly are going to use me to rescue Israel as you promised, prove it to me in this way. And it's interesting. Because Gideon was filled with the Spirit of God gathering an army, and yet in the middle of that said, I still am not sure. Sometimes we think that if someone, God's Spirit's on them, that they'll never make a misstep, that everything's right. God was using Gideon and filling Gideon to do a job, but in the middle of all of that, Gideon is still like, I don't know, I don't know. He's sitting here wrestling. He gathered the army already, but now he's like, God, if you're really going to do this, kind of late to ask that question now, isn't it? If you're really going to do this, then prove it to me in this way. And Gideon proceeds to give God another test. It's, it's called the fleece test. Have you ever heard the analogy of laying out the fleece? It comes from here. Gideon decides to lay out a, a little fleece in the, at night and say, God, if you're really in this, here's another test for you. God's like, oh, we're going to test each other again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's the fleece, and, and here's what I want you to do. In the morning when I wake up, let there be morning dew soaking the fleece, but let the ground around it be dry. Next morning, sure enough, the fleece is soaking wet, the ground's dry. Wow, cool. But God, I'm still not sure. One more test. Okay, what is it? Today I'm going to lay out the fleece tonight, and it'll be dry, and this time let the fleece stay dry all night, and let the ground around it be wet. Okay. Next morning, fleece is dry, ground's wet. See? And it's interesting that Gideon is doing this moment, and it's interesting that he's saying, God, I'm not sure, so let me, let me test you again, while he already gathered the army of 32,000 men together to do the fight. In other words, Gideon, Gideon chose to act in faith, even when he wasn't sure, he believed. See, some of us, we feel like, we, we get the idea that faith is the absence of doubt. We think that faith means you never doubt. Folks, that's called certainty. There's no faith necessary. I know it's going to turn out right. If I knew everything's going to turn out right, I could do anything. I'd be very brave. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is believing and doubting those are the two sides of the same coin, to be honest. Believing and doubting, but choosing to act on the belief rather than act on the doubt. Anytime you believe and doubt, you can choose to either act on the doubt or act on the belief. That's where faith comes in. And Gideon, in this moment, chose to act in faith even when he wasn't sure what he believed yet. He's like, I don't know, but I'm still going to gather the army together while I'm wondering. That's a good lesson. Well, Gideon has 32,000 warriors, and God's like, Gideon, you know, you tested me before, that's why I tested you back. You tested me again and again. I got one more for you. Here we go. So the Lord told Gideon in Judges 7, verse 4, 2, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they've saved themselves by their own strength. In other words, what I said earlier, if, if, if there's, you're outnumbered, but you might be able to win against the bigger opponent and say, aren't we the best? And again, God often doesn't use people who are arrogant enough to take the credit or to fight in their own strength. And so God says, I think you have too many people. So here's what I want you to do. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. Okay, Gideon's like, that makes sense. I'm going to get there and say, okay, guys, if anyone's scared, you're free to go. Maybe a few stragglers will leave. Maybe Gideon probably pictured it's like one of those epic movie moments where you sit there and say, who is with me? And the music's playing dramatically and everyone steps forward in power and two or three stragglers run home like cowards. Who is with me? And Gideon's like, if you're afraid, you can go home. And 22,000 people are like, cool. Okay, see ya. And, he, and only 10,000 people stay with him. He's lost almost... Well, he's lost over two-thirds of his army. 
wait, guys, I was joking. No, they're gone. Yikes. But God's like, oh, wait, Gideon, wait, I got another test for you too, actually. Verse four, but the Lord told Gideon, there are still too many. Bring the men down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. So when Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. And in the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. In other words, he says, everyone's going to get a drink, and I want you to watch how they drink and divide them accordingly. And some of you are going to jump down to the water, put their faces down, and go, gross. And others are going to scoop some water up their hands and laugh it out and look around. He says, figure out which group everyone's in and divide them. So Gideon says, okay. And as he does it, it says that only 300 men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths to the stream. To which Gideon's got to be thinking, well, I'm going to lose 300 more men. Oh, I'm going to send those guys home to him down to 9,700. Oh, well, we'll make the best of it. I guess that works. Like, I, I hear you. And then God says, the Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I'll rescue you and give the victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. Okay, God, I think you got the groups mixed up. You meant group A and you said group B. No, 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 send that group home. God, I started with 32,000 men. I have 300. My portfolio has been reduced to less than 1% of my starting point. I am in trouble. Why would you do that to me? Why does God do that? I've seen that so many times in my life in my spiritual journey with people. Why does God do that? You know, why? And I don't have a, a perfect illustration, but it's Father's Day, and, I, and one hit me on the way home from work this week. I was driving back to the house one day, this middle of this week, and I drove past a little subdivision off on 137th Avenue, and outside the house there, a dad was teaching his son to ride a bike. He had the training wheels off on the side of the, gra- on the yard, and he's got the kid on the bike, and the kid's petrified. You can see it in his face, and he's trying to get him to get on the bike. And it brought back memories of of teaching our kids to ride bikes. And I specifically was thinking about Lindsay. I was thinking about this girl right here because she's the last one to learn to ride a bike in our house. Most recent, the most recent learner. Way back three weeks ago. No, I'm just kidding. That was a long time. And uh, we, you know where she learned to ride the bike was at our old church parking lot. And I remember going over there and um, sitting with her in the lot and, and practicing. And we take the training wheels off. But I'll tell you, you see a, a child's petrified face when the training wheels come off. I need those. Because with the training wheels on, it's not exactly, but it kind of tilts. It kind of sits up a little bit. But you take those off, and it's just going to fall over. I'm going to fall over if I'm on it. You can't take the training wheels off. But, but we know something about the training wheels, that they actually will limit where you can go and what you can go around and how you can turn. It actually limits your ability to ride a bike well. But when you're scared, you feel like you need them to be able to ride the bike. So we took the training wheels off. Dad, I can't do it. Oh, you can. Get on the bike. I remember, you know, getting her on the bike, and she's so nervous, and I'm walking alongside of her, and I'm running alongside of her. She's riding it, and I'm just kind of holding things tightly. You got this, girl. And we're kind of holding it back and forth. And then, and then she's, at some point, you feel like she's, she's stable, so you kind of let your go of your grip, and you're like, hey, look, Lindsay, no hands. See that? And she's like, Dad, what are you doing? No, 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 you got this, you got this. And then you stick with her, and then a while you drop back. Hey, you're, you're doing fine. Dad, yeah, you're doing it. Maybe a couple of bad turns, but then after a while, back on the bike, and guess what? No training wheels needed. And I, I was thinking that's kind of, in a sense, what God's doing with Gideon here. God removed what Gideon thought he needed 
in order to succeed? What do you think you need in order to succeed? God was removing something that Gideon was using as a crutch. Maybe we have enough people, we can do it. And God's like, you know what? I think you need to realize you don't need that. So there, here it goes. That night, God's going to give Gideon one more sign of confidence. Without Gideon asking for one more test. No more test, God, because I don't like this give and take test stuff here. So God says, Gideon, I'm going to give you one more boost. Verse 9, the Lord said, get down, go to the Midianite camp. I've given you the victory over them. But if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you will be greatly encouraged, and then you'll be eager to attack. So Gideon took Pura, his servant, and went down to the edge of the enemy camp. So picture this. They go down to the camp at nighttime. Since the armies of the Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east had settled in the valley like a swarm of locusts, their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore, too many to count. And Gideon comes down there at night, sneaks up to the edge of the camp in the valley with his servant and listens in. And he sees some people sitting around a campfire. And they're talking and they're eating. Maybe they're drinking their, their bottle, ice cold bottle root beer, eating their Slim Jims before bed that night. And they're getting ready to go to bed and wake up the next day. And Gideon and his servant listen into their conversation. And guess what they hear? They hear one guy say, I had a really weird dream last night. Really, what was your dream? I dreamed that a big ball of barley bread, that's what they said, okay, a big ball of barley bread rolled down the mountain, charm, enormous thing, and crushed us all in this camp and just wiped us all out in the valley here. A big ball of barley bread? Yeah, just what, huge, wiped us, killed, crushed us all, destroyed us. What does that mean? That means you need to stop eating tacos before you go to bed. No, 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 seriously, what does it mean? Well, and then someone said, you know what it means? It's a, it's a, it's a dream, it's a, it's a sign that God has given Gideon and his army victory and we're gonna destroy us. And Gideon's listening to this. He said, my name. Wait a minute, how do they know my name? I wasn't exactly advertising my name. I didn't put it, I didn't have a, a Twitter account posting my, 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 my plans. How do they know my name? Like I was hiding in my wine press threshing wheat a couple days ago, you know? How do they know my name? And how do they know my army? My army? They should see my army is kind of pusillanimous here. But, but, but he realized right then that God had created a stir and God was doing something big. And it says in verse 15, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship before the Lord. Then he returned to the Israelite camp and he shouted, Get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. He divided the 300 men into three groups and gave each man a ram's horn, a clay jar, and a torch in it. So here's what he does. 300 men, three groups of 100 each. Everyone gets a ram's horn. Everyone gets the torch. Everyone gets the clay jar to hide the, uh, the, 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 the flame in. And the three groups separate around the valley. Verse 19, it was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. Smart timing, because they're changing the guard. People are kind of distracted, you know. Come around quietly, get as close as you can. And then everyone's kind of sleeping or resting or settling down. And suddenly they blew the ram's horns and they broke their clay jars. Then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. And they held their blazing torches in their left hand and their horns in their right hands. And they all shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And can you imagine waking up in the middle of the night and you hear, 
like ram's horns, and then you hear a bunch of them from all around you, and you picture each sounding instrument might represent a whole army behind it, like a group of people sounding a horn and a whole bunch of with that, and you're hearing hundreds of horns blowing. We are surrounded by a massive army. You go outside and there's torches all around the view. How many people are behind each torch? We're, we're surrounded, we're outnumbered, we're terrified. They're closing in on us. They're waking up in panic. It says that each of Gideon's men stood at his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. And when the 300 Israelites again blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. Why would that happen? Think about it. Because in the camp, it's not just one nation down there. Remember, it was Amalek and Midian and a bunch of other nations from the east. There are a bunch of different people who are coming together though they don't know each other, to fight Israel. And in the middle of their crazy delirium, waking up to this chaos and the fear, pulling out their swords and running around, they see people they don't know, and they think they're, the, they're in a fight, and they begin to fight each other, and that just snowballs into, that's the enemy. And Israel stands around with their torches and watches them start butchering each other. Oh. Nice. And in the end, they win. Now, here's what I can't tell you. I can't tell you much more of the rest of the story for sake of time, but let me give you the skinny. What happens in Gideon's story after this adventure? Some people escape. Gideon's got to go chase after them. He runs into some other Israelites who instead of saying, thank you for being a rescuer, they're like, why didn't you invite us to the, to the battle? And they're mad at him. Like, they're going to fight him. Gideon's like, really? You were in trouble and cried out for help and then God helps you and you're mad that he didn't use you to be part of the answer? So Gideon's going to be political. He's like, oh, no, no, no. It's, it's not, you know, you're better than me. He, he humbly says, you guys did better. And he just deals with it for the sake of, of stopping a war. Then he goes on to find the guys who got away. He, he, he finds some cities who are saying, well, we're neutral. We're not sure who's going to win, so we're not going to help you yet. So he's got to go find them on his own, come back and deal with the people who wouldn't stand by them in the middle of this conflict afterwards. Then Gideon and his soldiers win. They come together to celebrate. Gideon says, give me all your golden earrings. He melts them down, makes a golden ephod as a symbol of their victory, the problem was people began to worship the golden ephod as time went on. It became a, an idolatrous symbol because what it was the Ten Commandments, don't make a graven image or worship anything, like I said, anything in heaven above or earth beneath. He made a golden ephod and people began to worship the golden ephod. And then Gideon took charge and lived a long life. And he had a bunch of women, a bunch of wives. He got married to a bunch of women. All of his wives had kids. He had like 70 sons. And if that wasn't enough, he had a girl on the side that wasn't his wife. He had a kid with her too, 71. And then he dies as an old man. And when he dies, the 70 sons are kind of in charge. But the one son makes a conspiracy with a bunch of the people in the city of Shechem saying, we don't need 70 rulers. And they conspire and all they kill all 70 of Gideon's sons. The one son and the people with him kill all 70 of his other kids. And then the other son takes charge until the people that he conspired with start distrusting him and back and forth they distrust each other and turn against each other and destroy each other as well. And guess what happens? The crazy cycle of judges begins all over again. But that's the rest of the story. We don't have time to get into all the deets in a series like this. There's way too much ground to cover. What I wanted to say today is this. Gideon saw amazing victory and deliverance. And we're going to go back next week and tell one more story of a rescuer. And before we leave this mini-series, we have another story that's going to make the bit hair in the back of your head stand up. It's not about a rescuer. It's just about how messed up things were. Before we get to that era, that's just going to be really enlightening or, or something. But we have one more rescuer to tell you about next week. 
But for today, I want to land this one by, by just reminding you of the things that we saw in today's rescuer story. I want to remind you, for those of you who need to hear it, as you face life, as you face your calling, as you face your purpose, as you face the responsibilities God has entrusted to you, or you think that you have to be unethical to win because you can't do the right thing and be enough. I want to remind you that God can do more through you than you can see in yourself. Never, ever, ever, look, you can, you can doubt you if you want to, but you shouldn't because you should say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Today, I want you to get up and say, God, you can do more through me than I can see in myself, and that's all I need to know. And like Gideon earlier, I want to say this. You say, Arlen, I believe that. I do believe that. I'm, I'm going to believe it by faith, but I also doubt it. Okay, listen carefully. That's fine. Choose. Choose to act in faith even when you still have doubts. Okay? That's what faith is. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is believing and doubting, but acting on the belief rather than acting on the doubt. So my advice to you is this. If you believe that God is there and that he's got it, but you doubt it also, choose to act in faith even when you still have doubts. And that one thing right there would carry so many of us through the things that trip us up in life if we would just choose to act on the belief rather than acting on the doubt. But didn't Gideon do that? And then God kept taking things away. Oh, good, Gideon, you're going to trust me. Let me take away your army. Let me take away more. You ever felt that way before? Have you felt that way? Have you ever been in a spot in your life where you may have experienced loss that makes it hard to believe that you still can? Like at one time, you're like, God, I can do it. I can, I can do what you've called me to do. But then you had a loss. Then your health gave out. Then you lost the job. Then you lost your confidence. Then you lost your way. Then you lost someone in your life that was important to you for one reason or another. And along the way, you thought, you know, I believe that I could fulfill what God has called me to do. I believe I could do what I was right to do. I believe that I could walk this path. But now I've lost so much. I don't think I can anymore. Maybe you've experienced loss that makes it hard for you to believe that you still can. It's easy for us to get discouraged from our calling because of what we lose. But I want you to hear me very carefully. And you should grieve your losses, always. Whether you lose a thing, an opportunity, a person, anything, you should grieve your losses. That's healthy. But when it comes to carrying on through the grief, I want, I want you to hear this. God didn't need that in the first place. And it's hard to understand when we decide that we're too crippled up by life events to go on and, and fulfill what God has called us to do. But I want you to hear this today. Sometimes the things that you're not, that sometimes the things that you're sure that you need, the things you're sure you need, are the things that are in the way of what you're supposed to do. So Father's Day kicked in as I was preparing the story. And I think about Joe Ash, the dad, the moment, and I was thinking about Gideon and God stepping in and taking more away. And I want to just leave this simple idea with you. Don't worry that you've lost your training wheels. Because God is teaching you to ride the bike. 
Don't worry that you've lost your training wheels. You say, yeah, but, but I just, I, I believe, I believe I can trust God as long as I had that. As long as this was still in my life, as long as this was still with me, I believed I could, but I've lost something now, I can't. Listen, sometimes the things that you're sure that you need are the things that are getting in the way of what you're supposed to do. If God takes something away, it's because he's trying to teach you to ride the bike, ride the bike, trust him today. You can do all things. And I hope that somewhere in your faith journey, we will decide that no matter what comes our way in life, the best plan is to trust him and to follow him and to fulfill our calling.